This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode was pre-recorded as part of a live continuing education webinar. On-demand CEUs are still available for this presentation through all CEUs. Register at allceus.com slash counselor toolbox. I'd like to welcome everybody to today's presentation on sexual diversity. We're going to be talking about sexual diversity in terms of kink, BDSM, polyamory, and a few other things over the next five webinars, including this one. So we're talking not about sexual orientation, but sexual practices and preferences that still fall under that rubric of sexual diversity. So trigger warning, the following presentation involves frank discussions of kink and sexuality. While not graphic, some of the content might be triggering for some people. This series is meant to provide an overview to help clinicians understand kink, BDSM, and polyamory, but is by no means all-inclusive. It's designed to increase awareness of common issues and help clinicians identify areas where they may need further training. So in this one, we're going to explain why it's important to understand various sexual practices, including kink, polyamory, and asexuality. We're going to define different types of sexual practices that clinicians may encounter, explain the DSM-5's stance on kink and other practices, and describe the mental health impact of kink on participants. All right, all the boring stuff's out of the way. Well, not quite. In this series, today we're going to be talking about just in general cultural responsiveness and why we need to know about this information. The next session, we're going to do an overview of kink, followed by an overview of BDSM. Then we'll go a little bit deeper into dom-sub relationships and female-led relationships, and we'll end with a session that discusses polyamory and open relationships. All right, so... I just want you to listen to these scenarios and think to yourself what you would say. Would you be concerned or not if a friend or a client revealed taking part in any of these activities? And I'm going to read you six different activities. The first one, an individual gets a rush out of being put in a terrifying situation which makes him scream and cry out in fear. He engages other people to put him in a special device which will result in these effects. When his time and the device is up, his face is white, he has tears in his eyes, but he begs them to let him go through it again. Would that make you concerned? A woman asks strangers to cause her extreme pain to her genital area. She does this regularly as she feels more attractive following the painful session. Sometimes she'll even do it herself. If it's done right, no permanent harm results. Again, would you be concerned? A small group of people arrange to meet in a space in order to watch others role-playing being raped, humiliated, and tortured. They find this an enjoyable way of spending their evening. Concerning or not? Two people arrange to take part in a public scene. They spend a great deal of time preparing separately in advance. On the night, they dress for the occasion in clothes made of satin. Watched by a gathered group of people, they strike each other. The scene is considered successful if one of them briefly loses consciousness. The beatings are so severe that they can result in permanent damage. Would you be concerned? A woman spends several hours preparing her appearance. She chooses from items of clothing on which she has spent a lot of money, all of which painfully restrict parts of her body, forcing it into an unnatural shape and making it impossible for her to function normally. Over an extended period of time, she knows this will damage her permanently. However, she experiences great pleasure despite the pain. And the last one. 
Would it cause you concern if somebody told you, as a part of a group ritual, a man consents to an event which he knows will be grueling, although he doesn't know exactly what will take place? During the event, among other things, he's put in an altered state of consciousness, stripped, and left alone in public. Okay, so before we get to the processing of this, would any of these cause, cause you concern or consternation if you heard it from a friend or from a client? If they said they were partaking in any of these types of things. I know for me, when I read through these, my first response was, yeah, that, that, that might be concerning to me. Okay, so let's process it. The first one where the guy was strapped in and screamed, screamed in terror, that's a roller coaster. The second one where the woman was experiencing extreme pain to her genital area, that was a bikini wax. The third one, where they were gathering and watching people being raped and tortured. That was a horror movie, Criminal Minds, or Law and Order SVU. The fourth one, where they dressed in satin and st struck each other in front of an audience until somebody lost consciousness, was a boxing match. The fifth one, where the person dressed in something that shaped her body unnaturally, could be considered wearing high-heeled shoes or a corset. And the final one where the man engaged in some sort of grueling ritual that he didn't know what was going to happen but was put in an altered state of consciousness and left naked in public would could be a stag party, a bachelor party, or a fraternity pledging. So these are things that, or experiences, types of experiences that we've normalized in our society. Since they are not sexual in nature, a lot of times they're evaluated differently. So I kind of want to put that perspective on it. And I got that activity from rewritingtherules.com. She has tons of books and resources and other things there if you want to become more kink aware. So that is one place that you can start. Let's start by defining some terms for today's presentation, though. Kink is a form of playing. It's everything that falls outside of the confines of having sex simply to orgasm, which means it can take many different forms. And kink is a really broad spectrum. The term kink describes sexual behaviors and identities encompassing bondage, discipline, domination, submission, sadism, and masochism. All of those things we call BDSM, but it also includes a lot of other things, including fantasy and toy play and some sexual fetishism. Any activities that are not traditional, if you will, may fall in that kink category. BDSM is an offshoot of kink or a subset of kink, if you will. 15 to 20 percent of people in some studies in the U.S. report engaging in BDSM. So one in five. Just kind of let that sink in for a second when you're thinking about whether clients you work with engage in these types of behaviors. The answer is most probably yes. BDSM is a set of sexual activities that include role-playing, dominance and submission, restraints, and a variety of other sexual behaviors. BDSM is not always sexual though. BDSM is more about a mental connection and the sensation play doesn't necessarily involve any sort of genital contact. BDSM relationships vary from other sexual relationships because there is a dominant and a submissive partner, although some people can be switched. So in any particular scene or experience, as, as you'll learn about in future classes, one partner is going to be dominant and the other partner is going to be submissive or sometimes they're called top and bottom. Now, depending on the relationship and depending on the person, a, a particular individual may not always be the dominant. They can be switch, which means sometimes they play the submissive role and sometimes they play the dominant role. And that's cool. That's okay. It's just a matter of understanding that it's not 100% anything. Some people prefer to be dominant or submissive 100% of the time. Polyamory and open relationships. An open relationship is one where one or both partners have a desire for sexual relationships outside of each other. And, but polyamory is about having an intimate, loving relationship with multiple people. 
In polyamory, the whole point is to fall in love with multiple people. And there's, you know, not necessarily a relationship hierarchy. Open relationships typically start with one partner or both partners wanting to be able to seek outside sexual relationships and satisfaction while still having sex and sharing an emotional connection with a primary partner. So there's definitely a hierarchy in open relationships. Swingers typically are singles or partners in a committed relationship who engage in sexual activities with others as a recreational or social activity. So polyamory differs from open relationships and swinging in that in polyamory, the goal is to have an intimate, loving relationship where all partners are there for one another and committed to the relationship. So let's talk about some myths real quick. Kink, BDSM, and polyamory are anti-feminist. That is one. And you can make arguments on either side of it. I'm just going to present, you know, in each presentation, different arguments that I found. All of these alternative sexual activities do allow women to take charge of their own sexuality, declaring what they like, getting their emotional and physical needs met, and making sex about more than just having babies. In BDSM, in the dom-sub relationships, the sub is not always the, the female. The dominant can be the female. The dominant can, um, and the woman can choose, even if she chooses to be in the submissive relationship or submissive status, she can choose what's okay, what's not okay, what activities are going to take place. You'll learn, actually, when we get into the BDSM segment that in BDSM relationships, the subs actually have, a, submissives actually have a lot more control in the relationship because they're the ones that are saying, this is what's going to happen in the scene and this is what I'm okay with. The dominants are the ones that act out the scene, but a lot of times the submissives are largely in charge of setting rules and boundaries. Most people involved in kink or BDSM are trying to work through traumas. That's another myth. Just because someone has experienced trauma doesn't mean they're trying to work through it this way. Sometimes it's helpful for people who've experienced a trauma to work through scenes with someone who they trust to reclaim power. So sometimes people do work through their trauma this way. That is not saying that this is a recommended practice for working through trauma. But when we come to the realization that if we look at ACEs and we look from a trauma-informed lens, most people have experienced trauma. And there's a significant portion of the population that's experienced sexual trauma. Okay, so is it only okay for people who haven't experienced any trauma to engage in this? No. People who have experienced trauma may have dealt with their trauma. They may... Their sexuality may be completely separated from that trauma. So we don't want to assume that any altern alternate sexual behaviors are necessarily ways of trying to work through a, a trauma history or are the result of damage from prior traumas, which are often assumptions that, that people make when they hear that people are partaking in kink or BDSM activities. So some cautions. Kink is not kink, not just BDSM, done in the wrong way or for the wrong reasons can be physically or psychologically damaging. So kink can include bondage, pegging, role-playing, and it can be traumatic. For example, if you're engaging in kink and you are role-playing some sort of rape scene, for example, then that can be very triggering to someone who had experienced a rape in their past. It is important for both partners to be very aware of their history, what's motivating them, what they hope to get out of the scene, and have parameters set for safety. But it's also important that both partners be attuned to what's going on and able to set limits or call off the scene if it one partner seems to be struggling in some way. There must be an atmosphere of implicit trust 
excellent communication both ways, not just being told something, but communicating, saying this works, this doesn't, and it must be safe, sane, and consensual. And you will hear me say that over the next five presentations a lot. It has to be safe for the person. And some people, you know, just like you have people who will go out and climb Mount Everest, I wouldn't think that's safe, but they are choosing that level of risk. So people are able to choose a level of risk and give consent. However, they must be okay with the margin of safety that they're engaging in. It needs to be sane and, and consensual. Consensual comes up over and over again, and we're going to talk about different things that may impair someone's ability to consent later on. Even with that, all scenes can trigger unexpected or intense emotional reactions. Even if you are think you are really well aware of all your stuff or your partner thinks they're really well aware of all their stuff, all of a sudden a scene may trigger something that they didn't remember or they thought they had dealt with. The participants must have high levels of self and other awareness, a safety plan, and an aftercare plan. When engaging in kink or BDSM, aftercare is essential because it, both parties, after whatever happens, happens, both parties need to be okay with what went down. And the term sane, as used in the BDSM credo of safe, sane, and consensual, sane means it has to be goal-directed and making sense. There has to be a purpose to what you're doing and both partners have to openly and willingly agree to what's going on and and what's the word with an, with information there has to be an informed consent so they can make a rational choice the american psychiatric association has depathologized kinky sex so we need to get that out of our head from the dsm3 and the dsm4 that there are all these fetishes and stuff that are pathological they're not they have deep pathologized cross-dressing fetishes and bdsm so that's going to be huge when we start talking about bdsm because you're going to hear some things that you might think are not okay you might think are abusive or damaging so you're going to have to look at your assumptions based on your culture and and your background in the DSM-5, paraphilias are considered to be unusual sexual interests, but not pathological. However, people who have sex with children or have sex with people who haven't consented or who deliberately cause non-consensual harm, the emphasis is on non-consensual harm to themselves or others, may be diagnosed with a paraphilic disorder. The issue, as you can see here, the word consent comes up multiple times it something has to be consensual and the person has to be able to consent so children obviously most state laws set ages at which a child actually has the ability to consent to certain things and you know age for consenting of sex is much higher 15 to 20 percent of people in some studies in the U.S. report engaging in BDSM, and approximately 34 percent of people report engaging in some form of kink in their lifetime. Now, the statistics vary widely because a lot of people who engage in kink and BDSM are not willing to discuss these issues with any practitioner, and they're most certainly not going to put this information out for public knowledge so figuring out who engages in these sorts of behaviors can be a little bit more challenging this information came from a study called sexual diversity in the united states results from a nationally representative probability sample of adult women and men well yeah it was representative however the sample size always could be bigger and we're only getting a snapshot Using data from hundreds of thousands of Google search engine users over the period of 2006 to 2015, so approximately 10 years, results show that searches for words related to polyamory and open relationships significantly increased over time and were significantly higher 
than other popular web queries over the same time period, indicating this pattern of increased interest in polyamory and open relationships is unique. So what they're saying is, for example, if they, were lo if they would have been looking during the presidential election, you might have seen a lot of queries for information about President Trump or Hillary Clinton. But during that same time, the number of queries for polyamory was actually higher than the number of queries for those, you know, more timely, popular search engines at that point. So the belief is that there is a much greater interest in polyamorous relationship structures now. In another study, 766 therapists in the U.S. were assessed. 76% of them said they had reported treating at least one client who engaged in BDSM. So, wow. 76% of therapists in one sample reported that they'd worked with a client who engaged in BDSM, which tells me or indicates to me that the numbers of people practicing BDSM are probably somewhat higher than what we're getting in the survey results. Obviously, not as high as 76%. You're, you're looking at a uh, particular population of the people who are presenting for counseling. But it is something to consider how high that number is. 76% of the sample had treated at least one client who engaged in BDSM. Only 48% perceive themselves to be competent in this area. Why is that important? Well, because if we're working with clients who have issues and needs that we are not competent to treat, we either run the risk of treating them ineffectively or inappropriately, or we don't treat it at all, or sometimes we refer out. But we need to make sure that clinicians are really versed on the wide variety of sexual practices and relationship structures that exist out there so they can address the unique needs of their clients and not assume a mononormative relationship structure. Clinical training emphasizes monogamous relationships as being the norm. Think about when you were going through counseling classes, graduate school. Did you ever talk about polyamory? Did you ever talk about BDSM or kink? Probably not. Polyamory is legal. It doesn't necessarily involve marriage and can be structured in many different ways. As a side note, 83% of cultures in the world actually endorse or support polygamy. So polyamory is not a unique structure. It is more unique in the United States, but if you look at other cultures around the world, it's really not that unique. The public and clinicians often equate extramarital intimacy or sex with infidelity, yet these constructs are not the same. In a polyamorous relationship, the partners have agreed on the structure and agreed on having multiple people in the relationship and even multiple sexual partners in the relationships. Infidelity is doing it despite the part a partner's wishes or doing it behind a partner's back, being untruthful about it. Clinicians who are unaware of the many possibilities by which people may design and construct their preferred intimate relationships may unintentionally cause serious harm to clients. Fewer than half of practitioners were out to their current provider. And when I use the term practitioners, I mean people who practice kink or BDSM or polyamory. Um, in this case, we were talking specifically about BDSM. And they weren't out to their providers because they anticipated a stigma of coming out. Patients are often concerned that clinicians will confuse their behaviors with intimate partner violence and emphasize the consensual nature of their kink interactions. Going back to th this number here, 76% of the sample had treated at least one client who engaged in BDSM. Well, if we combine that with the knowledge that fewer than 50% of people who engage in BDSM are out to their providers, you know, it means that there's probably a lot more clinicians out there that are engaging 
clients who in practice BDSM. Impact of culturally insensitive practices. Well, BDSM and kink and not normative sexual behaviors, alternate sexual behaviors, bring with them a stigma. When you hear about BDSM, when you hear about kink, you may think that's odd. You may think judgmentally about that person. Think about people who go to adult stores, adult toy stores, and get sexual toys. They come out, and it's in this discreet little bag. Some people won't even go. They want to have it shipped to their house in this plain brown wrapper or whatever. And that emphasizes the stigma that it is not okay to explore, express, and embrace our sexuality. Stigma-related internalized feelings are positively associated with suicidal ideation. And 37% of participants who engaged in BDSM and kink-related practices indicated a non-zero level of suicidal ideation. So 37% of the people who are practicing non-traditional sexual behaviors feel enough stigma that they have some level of suicidal ideation. If you couple that, you know, that person's probably going to go to counseling because they're feeling suicidal to some level. And if they're greeted by a clinician or a medical doctor or whomever who is not receptive to their alternate sexual practices or who automatically assumes something must be wrong with them, they must be working through a trauma, yada, yada, then that compounds their shame and stigma and keeps them feeling isolated and, and with, withdrawing from actually reaching out for support. So we want to make sure that we know what resources are available in our community. We want to make sure that even if we don't work in depth with sexual issues, we're aware of the different practices that are out there and the characteristics of the individuals that engage in those practices, which, spoiler alert, in most cases, people who practice kink, BDSM, or are in a poly polyamorous relationship are score at least as well, if not better, than people who are practicing mononormative sexual practices. So. Clinicians need to become more aware of their own biases concerning both sexual identities and relationship structures by reflecting on messages that they consistently receive about monogamy and identifying assumptions about these messages. Interestingly, and, you know, I'm spoiling a few things that are coming in future presentations. Um, interestingly, in polyamorous relationships and BDSM re relationships or relationships in which BDSM is practiced, the intense level of communication and the requirement for just extreme and implicit trust in the, these relationships often makes these relationships less vulnerable to infidelity than your quote, vanilla relationships, which are your mononormative relationships. When working with clients, avoid making assumptions about their relationships and discuss relationships actively rather than passively. Ask them about if they're in a relationship. Who, ask them about their partners. Ask them questions. And we're going to talk about ways to modify the assessment to be more inclusive. It can be empowering for clients to realize that relationships may be designed in different ways to better meet participants' needs. Other tips. No one-size-fits-all for people in sexual relationships. In polyamorous relationships, for example, there can be a sexual component in among all partners, or there may be a primary couple and other people in the relationship with whom there is a deep emotional relationship of some sort, but not a sexual relationship. That may be effective for that particular group of people. There's no consensus about the best way to practice kink, BDSM, or consensual non-monogamy, even an among the community itself. There are so many variations, and part of it depends on people's comfort level, and part of it depends on people's histories, as well as 
you know, culture and, and everything else. People who engage in alternate sexual practices do need to learn about the practice that they're engaging in and get support from the community. We do need to make sure that we don't assume clients' problems are directly related to their sexuality. If somebody comes to us and they are depressed and suicidal and they practice BDSM or they're in a polyamorous relationship, for example, could that be contributing to their depression and suicidality? Maybe. Maybe not. It could have something to do with something completely different. We need to make sure that we check our own biases at the door when we're working with people in these relationship structures. What do we want people to experience in a healthy relationship? What is that? What are the goals of that? Getting away from what does that quote look like? Um, what are the goals of that? So do's and don'ts. Remember that culture often designates monogamy as the ideal relationship structure. Do monitor any microaggressions, both, both verbal and nonverbal, during a session. And that can include the raised eyebrow, the uh-huh, the, any sort of microaggression that you may display. Be open to and accepting all relationship structures and believe in their validity. All relationships have the vulnerability of breaking up all the all relationships have the vulnerability of infidelity however some relationships have been found to be very very strong and just because somebody's in a polyamorous relationship doesn't mean they're guaranteed that all of their partners are going to be faithful you know that's just not the way humanity works but it also according to the research, does show that people who are in polyamorous relationships and or BDSM do tend to have a higher level of fidelity in their relationships than people in traditional monogamous relationships. We can't, we can't say that any one relationship structure is going to be 100% perfect. And yes, consensual non-monogamy does refer to the whole gamut, if you will, of poly, open, swinging, all that sort of thing. Another do is to pay attention to the messages in your decor. Look around at what your office says. Pictures of you and your spouse may communicate something. Any religious decor that you may have in there. What your lobby reading material has. Any bibliotherapy you suggest? I found that a lot of relationship books tend to be very heavily Christian-based, which kind of surprised me uh, when I first started looking at some of these books for clients, that there were a, lo a lot of the books were, were citing scripture passages. I was looking at a census data for a community the other day, and in that community, which is a rather large one in Florida, 56% of people didn't ascribe to any religion at all, and only 27% ascribed to Christianity. So making sure that our relationship information and any reading materials we give, etc., is culturally sensitive. We also want to make sure that it's culturally sensitive to people's sexual orientations, that not everything is necessarily geared towards the heterosexual population. You want to make sure that you have representations of all different types of relationship structures that are available. You can, and I say you don't want to have all that stuff to the exclusion of other messages. You want to be authentic about who you are, but it's important to also communicate that you are welcoming and accepting of other lifestyles, other preferences. Things we should not do. Don't liken polyamory or consensual non-monogamy relationships to infidelity or cheating with permission. Especially in polyamory, the relationships, again, are geared around developing a core group of people, one, three, four, five, however many, who are there for each other emotionally, sometimes sexually, they are dedicated 
to one another and the relationship. And there is a, they're, they're bonded on multiple levels. Don't assume that people in consensual non-monogamy have commitment or attachment is, issues. It may just be a structure that works better for them for some reason. And when we get to the session on polyamory, we'll talk about the different reasons that people may engage in consensual non-monogamy. Don't assume people who practice BDSM have trauma or abuse issues to work through. They may have trauma or abuse issues, you know, like we talked about. We recognize that the majority of people have trauma issues in their life at some point. It doesn't mean that they're trying to work through those in the dynamic of the BDSM relationship. Don't, uh, well, we'll go back to that in a minute. Don't believe consensual non-monogamy or BDSM is anti-feminist. Some people can argue and will argue that it is, and that is, you know, totally within their purview to argue that it is. What I want when I look at a client, when I work with a client, is what is it that makes you happy? What is empowering to you? And that's what I'm going to support you in doing. Don't assume that this is a phase or that somebody's participating in kink or BDSM or poly because it's trendy. This may be the first time a person's actually felt like they fit, like all the pieces of the puzzle are fitting together. This may be the first time that the person has felt like, oh, the, all these thoughts and fantasies and stuff I had they're not weird other people share these ideas other people share these desires and and wish to partake in these different practices so this may be a time where the things that somebody's been thinking about generally since they were younger are becoming okay and they're becoming part of who that person is so they may be embracing it for the first time they may be talking about it for the first time Partly because maybe society has finally started to say, you know what, that might be okay. When Fifty Shades of Grey came out, and by the way, that is one of the worst representations of a BDSM relationship. It is not a healthy relationship at all in any way, shape, or form. That being said, when it came out, it did liberate a lot of people to start talking about it. Now, maybe they were talking about it in code in terms of what was going on in the book but they started talking about it and they started thinking about it and started saying okay you know look how popular that book was i must not be so weird because i have thoughts or fantasies about bdsm activities so yes people may start talking about it more because of a popular trend but that's just because that trend has made it okay to start broaching that discussion and not telling people that they have to keep it under wraps. We don't want to make assumptions about, about people's types of relationships. When people come in, don't assume that they're single or they're married or they even want to get married or they're in a monogamous relationship. Just ask. Common issues, coming out, disclosure. Now, some people who are LGBTQ have issue with the term coming out as it relates to BDSM or kink-related behaviors. These BDSM and, and kink-related behaviors are sexual preferences. They're not an orientation. You can go and look at all the different definitions. But these are about things you do, not who you do it with. However you want to look at it, when a person recognizes that a big part of their sexual happiness or a big part of their relationship happiness may involve something that is not mainstream. There become issues with disclosing it to other people because when we engage in things that are not mainstream, what happens? We generally experience some element of shock, rejection, denial, criticism, judgment, yada yada from other people so the process of disclosing one's sexuality in terms of their sexual preferences can be very traumatic or stressful for some people and even disclosing it to a partner if 
you've been in a relationship or even if you haven't and you start having this discussion about well i'm into these sorts of sexual behaviors it can be stressful so we'll talk about the different stages of self-acceptance of one's sexuality which first often begins with people starting to explore it for themselves and recognizing that hey i might be interested in something other than standard vanilla missionary sex who knew there's an increase in risk factors for health and economic disparity due to not coming out or disclosing to providers why because some of the issues that come up for people as a result of these relationships can trigger depression or anxiety and if you can't be open with your therapist about what's causing your depression and anxiety then it's going to be hard to get effective treatment which can mean mental health as well as physical health consequences some people who engage in bdsm especially harder core bdsm are going to experience physical injury if they're not willing to disclose to their provider what happened that caused that injury then they may refuse to seek treatment for it because if they go they're going to have to explain where all these bruises came from so they may not seek treatment for issues that really do require medical care and they may experience discrimination in the workplace in housing etc based on their preferences and this is more true of polyamorous relationships than bdsm however there is some level of discrimination for people who practice any sort of alternate sexual practices and they are open about it stigma disapproval of family friends and society people need to come to terms with the stigma associated with the behaviors that they enjoy engaging in what's today okay thursday we're going to be talking about a wide range of different kink related behaviors some of them you're going to hear or or learn about and you're going to go okay i can see that and some of them you're going to hear or read about and go oh not for me and that's cool in this community in the kink community one of the key rules is that not everything is for everybody and that's okay but we don't judge and it's important that people who are in the community recognize that basically you lose the right to judge other people once you enter the community because everybody has their own quirks and hang-ups and preferences and that's okay once they become aware of what they like and deal with their issues because of cultural norms religious norms whatever then comes the process of possibly expressing their needs wants and desires to friends family or society obviously if somebody's into some kinky stuff in the bedroom they're not going to be telling their mom about it necessarily so the level of need for announcing it is varies widely if you're in a polyamorous relationship on the other hand then a lot more people are probably going to need to be in the know so there's a a step-by-step -step process there can be legal ramifications let's think about bdsm for a second you have a client who engages in some hardcore consensual healthy bdsm that patient ends up with bruises in various stages of healing from different play sessions and presents to her family physician for an annual physical exam the physician sees bruises in multiple stages of healing and wonders what's going on that can trigger all kinds of warning bells for some clinicians because that is one of the signs of abuse and neglect now the difference between bdsm and abuse and neglect is that bdsm involves consent and, and we're going to talk about that a whole lot more when we get to that segment about why people would consent to pain why people would consent to something that might cause injury <clears throat> other legal ramifications in certain circumstances 
child custody has been challenged if a part two people are together they're in a relationship of some sort and maybe they engage in BDSM and then one partner leaves the relationship they may try to get sole custody claiming the other partner is um, engaging in non-traditional sexual practices other court cases that have come up in polyamory a grandmother did not approve of the polyamorous state of the relationship polyamorous state of where the children were being raised she took the family to court and she actually got custody based on the polyamorous relationship being a non-traditional relationship sexual health can uh, need need for major self-awareness that is another common issue because engaging in any of these activities can bring up issues that you may not have even known you had so people need to be very aware of what feels okay what doesn't feel okay what they want to do and why they want to do it if they are wanting to engage in a particular scene in order to work through prior trauma that's very different than engaging in that same scene because they find it somehow erotic sexual health concerns pregnancy and or STDs can be an issue that come up talking about issues or problems within non-traditional relationships can give detractors ammunition and this can be talking about issues in their non-traditional relationships with their therapist or even with their friends and people who disagree if they're talking about it with their pastor for example the pastor can say you know see if you're engaging in this kind of relationship then obviously you're going to be punished for it and it's going to cause you problems these problems you're experiencing is because you're not engaging in the traditional mononormative uh, heterosexual relationship so a lot of times people who engage in non-traditional practices don't know who they can trust who they can talk to about any problems they're having and not have them have it come back and bite them in the butt a lot of people have difficulty finding competent health and mental health care providers who understand that kink and BDSM and poly are not signs of mental distress or mental disorder they are practice choices that being said I will be giving you throughout the series a lot of different resources one of the ones that I will tell you today if you google being a kink aware therapist there are a lot of resources out there to start helping you learn about different issues that may face people who embrace alternate sexual practices another common issue is there's a ton of misrepresentation especially in mainstream porn and 50 shades of gray and some of the self self-proclaimed doms out there dominance get it wrong and I've seen I've read a lot of blogs and articles and things by self-proclaimed doms who are flat abusive they are taking out a lot of it seems personal issues and resentments that they've built up and directing it towards their sub and that's not what BDSM is about at all it's important that we need to recognize what these relationships look like if they are healthy and that goes back to what I was asking earlier what do we want people to get out of a healthy relationship a sense of love a sense of companionship a sense of support a feeling that somebody is there for them what else you know in your mind do you want a client to get out of a relationship and then start thinking about structure does the structure of this person's relationship provide support encouragement caring you know all that stuff that we look for in a healthy relationship if so does structure really matter that much and we are all going to have our own biases and there are going to be some people who because of their philosophical background are not going to be comfortable working with clients for example who practice polyamory and that's okay if you know that if you know that that's not a group that you're comfortable working with it's important to refer out 
It's also important to recognize that just like anything else, the kink culture, if you will, the BDSM culture, and there are a lot of subcultures within each one of these things, polyamory, it gives you a place to start with people. Not everybody embraces it 100%. So people's level of acculturation or embracing or acceptance, whatever you want to call it, of the particular culture that they are in is going to vary from person to person. Some people will be involved in kink, for example, and there are certain things they're fine doing. And there are a lot of lists out there. They, they, we call them yes, no, maybes. Yes, I'd like to do that. No, that's a hard limit. Not interested. Not doing it. And maybe is a soft limit. You know, that might be something that with the right person I might consider doing. Those yes, no, maybe lists are great places to start discussions for people who are engaging in non-traditional sexual practices because then they can share with their partners what their hard and soft limits are and start having a more open discussion about what's going on. They can also share those lists with their providers if it's appropriate in order to help them so their providers can help them deal with any guilt and shame issues surrounding those behaviors. A majority of the population dabbles in some form of kink. Practitioners who embrace kink, especially BDSM and polyamory, are often reluctant to disclose these issues to their medical and or mental health providers. The issues of shame and guilt often arise when people first discover their alternate sexual preferences and can be compounded by a culturally insensitive therapist. Yes, disclosing that you are engaged in BDSM or in a polyamorous relationship is not, doesn't carry with it the same weight or issues of coming out and disclosing a sexual orientation. You know, I'm not, I'm not equating the two. What I am saying is we don't want to minimize the stress and shame and guilt that comes along with disclosing this or even recognizing in oneself that they may have non-traditional sexual interests. As with working with any diverse group, the catch-all terms kink, BDSM, or poly can mean many things, and each person has their own level of comfort with the practices that they're engaged in. In the following episodes, the next four, we're going to explore each of these topics in greater depth, learning about the different forms or dynamics which might occur, the prevalence of each one of them, and clinical issues which might come up in counseling. Okay, so there's a couple of questions. And the question about referring out, if we feel like we cannot be objective for some reason. Yeah, we have to. I think that's the ethical thing to do in the best interest of the client is to refer out. Now, we do want to ideally check our own biases and try to become more aware of these different communities, lifestyles, behaviors in order to see if we can embrace them. Because when we refer a client out, when we say, okay, that's, that's not something I can deal with, you need to go somewhere else, what does that say to the client? That says that's not an okay thing to talk about or that's not an okay behavior. So we want to try to avoid doing that, but if we just can't work with the client and you know, we all have issues that we cannot work with. I personally know that you know, there's been two times in my career where I've had to refer someone out because they've had a presenting issue that was just not something that I could work with with an open mind. Um, however, if you just, I say just feel incompetent working with the client, seek supervision. Have a supervisor help you identify and work through your biases to help you work with the client on addressing these issues. And remember, that sometimes the clients may be presenting with alternate sexual behaviors or relationship structures, and that has absolutely nothing to do with their presenting issues. So we don't want that to color our assessment and just assume that it has something to do with it. If they say they're engaging in, in BDSM, okay, you know, what does that, 
what does that bring to your life? How does that empower you? Yeah, let me let me know a little bit more about that. There's a lot to learn, and you know, even working on these presentations, I've got five hours worth of PowerPoints, and there was probably still another 15 hours that I could have done without even getting into the nitty gritty of or graphic details, if you will, of any of these practices. So there's a ton to learn, and if you encounter a client who does engage in some of these things, talk openly, just like you would if you were encountering somebody, a, a client from a different culture. Instead of assuming you know something, ask them, you know, what does that mean to you? Be open to it, seek supervision, and know of the resources in your community. There's probably a lot more than you think that are out there for people who are engaged in, in kinky sexual behaviors, polyamory, or BDSM. It's as easy as going online and Googling. There was one website that we'll get to later, but I'll tell you about today. Um, it's more than two, I believe it's more than two.org. And let me see if I can make it come up real quick. .com. More than two.com is an excellent resource primer. You know, it's definitely not an in-depth thing, but it's, it's a great primer for working with clients who are in any sort of a polyamorous type relationship. In your classes, you will be also finding in the additional resources section lots of PDFs. They're not obviously required to pass the quiz, but if you're interested in this topic, they will be available to you so you can learn a little bit more. What other questions do you have? And whether clients need to be aware of the difference between coming out and a preference for non-traditional sexual practices, I mean, that's going to be a decision on your part as i said we don't want to minimize the stress that they encounter when they are forced or choose to disclose their alternate sexual preferences because it can be very very stressful for a lot of people sometimes clients uh, the question is do clients actually need help in discussing specific practices or is it more of a normalizing choice for the majority of clinicians out there who are not sex therapists, what we are going to work on is helping them learn and normalize choice. And jumping ahead to the, to the model, we want to provide information, let, help them find good resources, not really bad, you know, mainstream porn time resources, but good educational resources. Provide information, let the client talk about what's going on and come to terms with whatever it is and then start exploring it in in greater depth as far as techniques that's really not something that most mental health counselors or social workers are going to go into that's going to be more of a referral for sex therapy and that's obviously a specialty that we can make a clear case for why we're referring out because doing especially with, with BDSM, but even some of the kink practices, doing them inappropriately can actually result in physical harm. And yes, I've worked with people that are in the community. And again, the, the question is, if a client wants to start shifting toward more specifics, at what point do you refer? That's going to be, a, a, again, a personal preference at, as to what you feel comfortable discussing. If you are referring to resources, for specifics, for example, on different ways to um, tie bondage knots. That's a resource that you can refer to. If you're talking about actually, you know, practicing it in session or talking about more sexual implications, you may feel more comfortable referring to a sex therapist. That's just going to be based on your training, your comfort levels, and specifically what the client wants to talk about and whether you think you're competent in discussing that. I most certainly wouldn't be discussing particulars of, for example, bondage techniques with clients because there's such a great risk of actual physical harm if it's done incorrectly. I would refer out for that, but that's, that's me. Any other questions?
Okay, so today was really just obviously a grand overview of what we're getting into and why it's important for us to be aware of all the different structures that are out there and aware of how we might react if someone came and told us they were engaging in certain activities. That first um, activity that we did, I think, helped some of us see, I know it did, um, for me, help some of us see what our comfort levels are and where our biases may lay. So it's important for us to start becoming aware of that. Thursday, we are going to start discussing kink more in depth, different techniques and things that people might be into, and the characteristics of practitioners, etc. All righty, everybody, have a great day, and I'll see you Thursday. If this podcast helps you help your clients or yourself, please support us by purchasing your CEUs at allceus.com or getting your agency to sponsor an episode. A direct link to the on-demand CEUs for this podcast is at allceus.com slash podcast CEUs. That's allceus.com slash podcast CEUs. To sponsor an episode of Counselor Toolbox and reach over 50,000 clinicians per week, go to allceus.com slash sponsor. Thank you.